So hey guys, we're back, and we're back with another interview podcast, um, and I can't wait to bring this one to you because this gentleman, along with somebody else that I, I dearly love um, and is very kind to me in, in Western history, just came out with a new book. Uh, of course, I want to thank my friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest-running newspaper. One year for 25, uh, two-year subscription for 45, or three years for 60. I tell everybody do the $60 for three years because if you go to year to year, you're going to spend $15 more. And to uh, subscribe to the Tombstone Epitaph, you can do so by going to tombstoneepitaph.com. And Mark and Eric and all the folks at Epitaph, they put out a beautiful newspaper that comes right to your door and is jam-packed full of Western history. I also want to thank my friends at the Wild West History Association, WWHA. Uh, you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. Uh, do it, do the 75 bucks for one year. Try one year. And I'm telling you, when you get that journal, it's a book that shows up every quarter. It is jam-packed with Western history, no advertising. Uh, it is all about Western history, and it's a beauty of a journal. And then you also get the Roundup. Uh, which they just had in uh, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. And we traveled all over Mount Rushmore and, and Deadwood. And 2023, you're going to want to put 2023 on the map for the WWHA as we're heading down to San Antonio, Texas, and we're going to see the Alamo. And my wife and I have never been, and we are already making plans for San Antonio. So if you want to join that, uh, be sure to go to wildwesthistory.org. And if you want additional history in a video form, go see them at uh, YouTube. They have a YouTube channel. Subscribe, hit the notification bell, and they are doing some amazing stuff on that YouTube channel. So check out the Wild West History uh, channel on YouTube. So this man came to me through uh, other folks that we both know. And I really didn't get to know him until I went to the Roundup in South Dakota. And him and I were on the same bus, and I'm talking about Kurt House. We were on the same tour bus, and we ended up at the original Number 10 Saloon. Not the second one, but the original Number 10, where Wild Bill was shot and killed. Uh, and, and I bought him a beer, and I got to tell you something. The history... And the knowledge just poured out like you opened a spigot outside and the water pours out. And then, but he's doing it, he did it in such a way that it was, um, it was like a father teaching his son how to fish. It was, I'm going to, I'm going to show you some stuff. He's got a Southern draw and he's got, I'm going to show you some stuff. And I'm going to teach you some stuff. And this is how this was done. And this is why this was here. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I, I would love to hear his story. And he's here today. Now, you can find Kurt at KurtHouse.com. And that's K-U-R-T-H-O-U-S-E. And that's KurtHouse.com. And everything about Kurt is there. Collectibles, things he's selling, knowledge. He puts his phone number up and says, you got questions, you give me a call. You got questions, you email me and he'll get right back to you. So he's just a great guy. And Kurt, welcome. I'm Thank you for being here. Well, gosh, Mike, thanks a lot. I hope I can 
live up to that. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, if it doesn't live up and I don't think it's going well, I'll hang up on you <laughs> and I'll just finish it myself. Um, okay. But uh, Kurt's, Kurt's written a lot of books and we're going to cover some of them today. I'll go through his book library. And if, if I'm missing anything, sir, you tell me, or if that's not right, you tell me that it's not right. Uh, he wrote Texas Archaeology, Honoring Our King Harris. Uh, he wrote the book called The Legend of Sincasa Mesa, excuse me, The Legend of Sincasa Mesa and Sincaja Mission, uh, Cult Factory Engraving, uh, a reading guide for Live Oak County, Texas, Hand Forged for Texas Cowboys, Bitten Spur Makers in, in the Texas Tradition, it's a pocket guide, of course, Chasing Billy the Kid with Roy Young. Bitten Spur Makers in the Texas Tradition. Now, this is my favorite, and I don't know if this is you or not, but because I do air conditioning for a living, I, I'm, I didn't know this. A guide to collecting <laughs> mechanical fans, uh, the Emerson Guide. Is that correct? Did you write that? I did. And the, antique, and the other book, too. Yeah, and Antique Mechanical Fans, which, again, is based on a lot of Emerson history. And Emerson Copeland, Emerson is one of my customers on social media, on my air conditioning stuff. And so I'm really blown away. Did I miss any books? Is there additional? Well, uh, you maybe so, but probably not important. I'm working on my 10th one. Okay. This, uh, but you co-wrote some stuff, and I didn't really include those because those were groups and there were other people and you did some you've done forwards you've written over 200 articles you've been on television i would assume you've been on a movie <laughs> yeah yeah i would assume you've been on a movie uh, i mean he's done it all and and uh and and he's the nicest man and i think that's the big part he's just a super cool guy so how well, did thank you mike yeah how did you end up how did you and i'm going to say this dumb how did you end up as Kurt House? I, I asked Bob Bozbell the same question a while back. I said, how did you end up as Bob Bozbell? How did you end up as Kurt House? And I'm not saying that we know how you became Kurt House. But how did you become Kurt House, this man who's involved in Western history and is also, um, I'm looking for the word, I can't find it, about guns. Like you're, you're an aficionado of guns. You know about Western history and Spurs. How, how did that happen? Well, you know, Mike, some people believe that uh, collectors are born, and then there's another school of thought that says that collectors are made, and I guess I got the disease from my father, who was a Battle of the Bulge World War II vet, and he brought a lot of... World War II souvenirs back. Actually, he sent them back because he was postmaster of my little town and he wasn't drafted until late 1943. And um, the reason he ended up with so many wonderful artifacts from World War II and his experience in Europe was he sent them back instead of trying to carry them back in a duffel bag like most GIs do. So he ended up with a very nice collection of high-quality German arms and uh, European uh, arms and medals and souvenirs and all this kind of stuff. And I remember ever since I was a little kid, five or six years old, old ranchers would come over to our house, and the first thing 
they wanted to do was look at the guns. I mean, you know, people don't want to come over to your house to look at stock certificates. They're various kinds of investments, but he thought uh, fine antique arms were a good investment, and he uh, collected them. And as a consequence, I grew up admiring this and seeing that other people were also admiring it and interested. I think that must have been where I got the collecting bug from him originally. And my grandfathers, too, uh, they were great storytellers. Uh, when I grew up on a ranch in southern Texas, it's a lot of oral tradition about ranching and your relatives, what they did, and so forth. So uh, my two grandfathers were just great, too. They would tell me stories. And one of my grandfathers told me a story about John Wesley Harden when I was probably 10 years old. So pretty early on, I got the bug. <laughs> but but you you did things that are, are and, and are doing things different because lots of people focus on places and stories and events. And you became somebody who is, and I've read through some of the books, like you are a go-to for multiple people, you know, television, entertainment, books about the Colt weapon, the Colt gun. How did, how did you end up saying to yourself, I get the weapons right with your dad, but then as you progressed, did, was it always, did the Old West always appeal to you? Or did you look at the the stuff that your dad bought, uh, brought home from WW2? Well, you know, it's uh, hard to discover really where you uh, crossed into the collecting uh, frame of mind. But for one thing, my parents were both educators and they taught us early, I have one sister, uh, to not waste time. And we didn't even get a TV until like 1965. So, you know, I didn't waste a lot of time doing stuff that I can't account for. And uh, they taught us to make the time count, you know, do something worthwhile. Uh, my cousin, I had one wild cousin that they kind of summed it all up. He said, most of my time and money I spent on liquor and women, the rest I wasted. <laughs> so if, if you waste your time, you're not going to accomplish a whole lot. But uh, my wife uh, constantly uh, uh, sort of pokes fun at me for uh, being always busy is what she calls it. I kind of have that reputation in my family. I don't waste a lot of time. I believe, you know, you got to make your mark in the world, try to leave the world a bit better off than it was when you came into it, I guess. Sort of my personal philosophy. But somebody like me, and there's lots of people like me, who look at the cult or guns used during the 1800s, the Old West period, know nothing about them. And I'm going to say this first off. I am a supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, 
Good. I, I do own guns myself. So this is not, when I say I don't know anything about, I don't know anything about that period of the 1800s and the Colts and the revolvers and, and, and all of that. What would be something, or what, I'm going to say this, what is your favorite gun during that period? Well, let me say something I forgot to mention a while ago. I sure. consider myself a student, Mike. I'm always learning. I mean, you're a fool if you stop learning, you know, mm -hmm. and you can't learn it all. And I enjoy, most of all, probably the period of the American West settlement, Manifest Destiny and all that. To me, I guess it came from my ranching background, but I also... Uh, was influenced by my cousin who early got me into uh, arms. And, and it's not just the arms of the West that I collect, but my degrees are in anthropology and archaeology. And so I, I uh, early was interested in the material culture, you know. And the nice thing about history, the reason I got into history, I guess, was because the artifacts uh, are just... Uh, tangible evidence of history and then when you start studying them you get into history and the thing I liked about arms of the West especially is so many times they have a historical connection so if you're studying history you find out that uh, why Derp used a cold single action for example well that makes you want to learn about cold single actions and then you get a cold single action and you want to learn about the history of that. It's just a circle back and forth. That's that's how I got into it. As far as a favorite, uh, wow. <laughs> I, I caught an old collector friend of mine who always used to say, uh, he's gone now, but I, I asked him that. He said, my favorite gun is the last one I bought. <laughs> so... I don't know. I've got so many historical guns. I've got John Wesley Harden's gun. I've got, uh, he had several guns, not just one, mm -hmm. but, uh, I got Frank Hamer's gun. I've got Jeff Milton's gun, personal pistols. Another uh, mentor I had, uh, I used to collect Winchester, started out of Winchester's. The very first gun I got was an old gun that a rancher farmer plowed up in his field and uh, he gave it to me and when he gave it to me I didn't even know what it was and I'm 75 years old so I started collecting when I was 14 years old back in the early 60s so I had a lot to learn and you know it's strange now as we look back uh, for your listeners that are able to go to all these books and sources and wonderful uh, resources that we have now to find out about some artifact but when i started out there weren't that many books on guns and you really had to study and it took me a long time to even figure out what i had what well, turns out i had a 1866 winchester carbine which was the very first winchester made uh, to bear the winchester name so that uh got me into it and I'll never forget that gun because it was such an enjoyable experience learning about the history of that gun and then I 
soon got into coat collecting, and I think coats are probably my favorite because a couple things. The first thing for your listeners ought to know, uh, Colt is the only company that still has their old records of where, when, and sometimes even who they shipped guns to. From about, oh, Civil War period, they have some records dating back to about 1865, but mostly the records are later than that. And there's some gaps. They don't have all the records of every gun they've ever made. But Cole started in 1836, you know, and and uh, Walter Prescott Webb, for example, in his good book, The Great Plains and uh, uh, the West, said that, uh, there were three technological breakthroughs that enabled the settling of the West, and the Colt revolver was one of them, along with the windmill, which brought water to the surface in dry areas, and then lastly, barbed wire. But uh, to finish up your question, I guess my favorite guns are the ones that are connected to Old West, Old West uh personalities like some of those i mentioned so is the west is cruising along in the 1800s did they decide did, did the population of men and women and anyone that's using was there one that eventually rose to the top like the cream of the crop that was more universally like a model number or that really became the weapon, the the arms that was most carried? Well, that's a good question, yes. Uh, fortunately, I can answer that pretty simply. There were two guns that were probably more important than any other uh, guns in the uh, winning of the West, as some people call it. The Winchester uh, Lever Action 1873 carbine is often described as the gun that won the West, and then the Colt single-action pistol, which came out in 1873, was an improvement over the percussion arms previously made by Colonel Colt. But the single-action peacemaker, as it's called, or hog leg, it's got a lot of nicknames, uh, and the 73 Winchester are the two guns that are known as the classic arms that help win the West. So is this, these two weapons, these two arms, are rising to the top. Now, and I'm going to ask, because this is, as you were talking, and I'm looking at your new book, uh, he's, him, Kurt and Roy have a new book out called Chasing Billy the Kid. Right on the front is a, is a revolver. Um, oh, yeah. Beautiful. Um, where did they go for ammo? Like, this is probably, like, maybe a dumb question. I mean, I know where they went in Tombstone, but... I would assume ammo wasn't cheap and these guys are shooting weapons and they're doing whatever. Where did they go to get ammo? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, in our book, for example, we cover an amazing uh, thing we discovered in uh, New Mexico and uh, in going through the... Uh, Pat Garrett papers and the Tunstall records, we discovered a receipt 
which showed that Tunstall, John Tunstall, for uh, people who are not familiar with the Billy the Kid story, he was sort of a father figure to Billy the Kid, started him out on the right path, as he once said, the only man that ever did anything for him because he was treated so badly and used by other people. But we've actually found a receipt showing that Tunstall traveled to Kansas City and bought the rifles and ammunition that were used on his ranch during the Lincoln County War. So to answer your question, back in the percussion days, you know, it was very difficult for people to get powder, lead, and caps, uh, percussion caps for the uh, arms. And even before that, of course, uh, back during the original 13 colonies in Daniel Boone and that area, they were flintlocks. So that was really hard to procure when you got out on the frontier. But then we proceed into the percussion period, which is the first of the Western expansion and you still had to get lead and percussion caps and gunpowder and just think about the Spanish when they came up from Mexico Mm -hmm. back in the 1590s and 1600s think about how in the world did they transport gunpowder and flint and whatever else shot lead how do you get lead out on the frontier in 1650, you know, around Santa Fe in that area. Uh, but later on, there began to be frontier uh, mercantile stores that sold ammo. And it's a curious thing uh, that I like to show off when I have visitors come to my collection. A lot of early ammunition has a picture of the gun on the box. Mm. And uh, you know why they did that? No, sir. It's a interesting thing. They did that because so many people were illiterate. They mm. didn't know how to describe the ammo they needed for their gun, but they could just point to a box with a picture of their gun and say, yeah, give me that one. That's the gun I got. Mm. <laughs> so... It's like the uh, trade signs, you know, that's the origin of trade signs in the old days. Like a boot shop would have a big sign out there was the shape of a boot. So if you were an immigrant moving west or something, you didn't speak English, but you looked up there and saw a boot, you knew that was a boot shop or an anvil. You knew that was a blacksmith, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's the same way with ammo. And... Uh, there, there's a lot of answers to your question, but... Uh, well, I mean, because the reason I say that is you watch movies, and I'm going to say movies, or you watch a show, and they're just firing. Boom, 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 firing, 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 firing. And one, they never reload. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy just fired off six, and he's still going. Um, so they never reload. Yeah, he fires once, and nine guys fall down. <laughs> right. So you're, you're watching these people, and you're watching it, but in a sense, though... The, the public then sees that happening and they think the same thing. But in my eyes, I'm like, holy cow, that guy just emptied his barrel. Now he's on to the nether weapon. He emptied that barrel. And then, you know, you look at a gun belt and he's got all these, you know, he's got all the ammo and stuff on his gun belt. But 
in my eyes, I'm like, man, he he's in the middle of nowhere. Like, where does he go to refill? And that's why I kind of asked the question. Well, you know, they say Billy the Kid practiced all the time and burned up more ammo than anybody. So that's interesting, makes you ask that question. That's a legitimate question. They There are a lot of accounts of him going into towns and either stealing or buying more ammo because he just practiced all the time. I guess that's why it was good. As, as the Old West continued to evolve and modifications were made in factories, I'm sure the factory, the Colt factory, listened to its people buying and said, I got a complaint, grip doesn't feel right, the trigger doesn't feel right, the trigger's too, too light, I touched it and it went off. The hammer does this. I don't like this. As it mod- as weapons and arms were modified, um, did did the gun become better, or in your eyes, did some modifications become so much that it lost its appeal? Well, no. It, guns evolved, you know, just like uh, culture does, and technological breakthroughs. Uh, the progress of civilization, new inventions. That's what's great about capitalism and free enterprise, you know, like mm-hmm. Coke. He's the best example in the world of the free enterprise and capitalist system because he had an invention, he developed it, he went broke. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Colonel Cope uh, went broke a couple of times. He started out uh, <laughs> trying to... Uh, get people high on laughing gas, believe it or not. He traveled around giving these gas uh, exhibitions, really quite comical, but he soon uh, developed the uh, revolver, a dependable revolver, and uh, went broke his first company, patent arms company in New Jersey. And then uh, along comes the uh, Texas Revolution, 1836, and uh, then the Mexican War, 1846-48, and by that time, Colonel Cole got together with a, a Texas hero that we all revere, and his name was Samuel Walker. Mm. And uh, Samuel Walker obtained one of those slightly obsolete uh, five-shot Patterson revolvers that I was just telling you about that was made in Patterson, New Jersey, and it was only a five shot and it was percussion, so you had to have gunpowder and you had to have caps and you had to have little balls and it was difficult to load and it had a lot of problems, but Samuel Walker and uh, Jack Hayes and a lot of the uh, Texas Rangers in the Mexican War uh, through use made suggestions, especially Samuel Walker, who traveled to Washington, met with Colt, and said, here are things you need to do to improve this arm to make it better for uh, military usage. See, the big thing in those days, every manufacturer, everybody that came up with a better mousetrap, so to speak, sought a military contract. That's what was the gold uh, that everybody wanted, because if you could get the guarantee of a government contract, you could probably sustain your factory. So that's just what happened in the Mexican War. Uh, 
during the war, of course, uh, there was a vast need for arms, especially dependable arms. And uh, coaches happened to be in the right place at the right time, developed this revolver, the Walker revolver that he named after Samuel Walker, who, by the way, is buried right here in San Antonio, was a hero of the Mexican War. And that gun was a real technological breakthrough. It was a percussion, uh, probably the heaviest revolver ever made. It weighed weighed almost four pounds. You could Mm -hmm. hardly hold it out there with one hand. Mm -hmm. I've got one, and and you're just trying to hold it out with one hand outstretched is hard to do. I used to give those demonstrations at schools and and the kids' eyes really light up when they try to hold that thing, you know, because they experience it. They they see how difficult it was. And and the mistake many people make is they think people strode down the street wearing that thing. Well, that's not true. The very first ones that came out, those big, heavy percussion revolvers that Colt was, began to churn out during the Mexican War were meant to be carried by the horse. He didn't wear those. Mm -hmm. Those guns fit into two pommel holsters that fit around a saddle horn, and you let the horse carry those heavy things. And then when you got the tide, you whipped them out and started firing, and you had six shots each, so 12. Each man had uh, two revolvers, usually. In some cases, they didn't. But 12 shots, uh, you know, that was a big deal because... For example, in uh, 1840, I think it was 44 or so, the Battle of Walker Creek, which is just north of San Antonio here, Jack Hayes was the first guy, the first time in history to prove the effectiveness of a revolver in warfare because what happened with Jack Hayes fighting the Comanches they, the typical Comanche strategy was to send a few braves out and try to lure the the military or the Texas Rangers or whoever was chasing them into a trap, and they would surround them, you know, with 200 warriors, and then they'd wipe them out. But Jack Hayes early learned that that was a trap, obviously, so he... He was a fast learner, and he wouldn't let his men do that. Well, at the Battle of Walker Creek, they had these single-shot muskets. The military was always behind. I don't know if you or your listeners know that, but, you know, I guess it's even true today. Military is always behind technology. They don't have the the most up-to-date stuff, or at least it was certainly true in the old days. So... The standard issue long arm that uh, cavalry had, they didn't even call them cavalry. That was before uh, the cavalry, they called them uh, mounted infantry. I think uh, it's not quite the right word. But anyway, uh, you have these uh, this mounted infantry with a single shot carbine fighting the Indians and the Indians quickly learned that as soon as they fired once they were vulnerable Mm -hmm. so they would wait for the soldiers to fire once and then rush them and usually overpower them 
Well, they tried that in 1844, I think it was, at Walker Creek, and guess what happened? Jack Hayes' men jerked out their five-shot Patterson revolvers and could fire ten more times. So that uh, really taught the Comanches a lesson. They they didn't like to fight Jack Hayes because he could shoot so many times. It was technology, see, he had by that time caught up with... Uh, the military and the Indians and enable them to uh, overpower the the technology that the Indians had. I mean, think about it. The Indians basically were a Paleolithic society still operating with stone points on the bow and arrow. So usually if you review history, whoever uh, is at the front of technology is the one that wins the war. Well, uh, I hope that answers your question. It does question. answer the question. It, and, and it's something we honestly could talk about for quite some time. We're going to change gears. And for somebody who's listening, it's like, no, I want to keep talking about weapons. And I want to talk about arms. <laughs> we'll, we'll get Kurt back, I promise. I, I'm almost positive he'll say yes. <laughs> yeah, let's, I will. Talk, let's talk about your new book. Because it is has a revolver on the front. And you have a new book out called Chasing Billy the Kid. Uh, Frank Stewart and the Untold Story of the Manhunt for William H. Bonney. And you wrote that with uh, Roy Young, Roy B. Young. It took you guys over five years to put it together. Tell us a little bit about this book. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. I'm so excited about this new book. It's... it's uh... It just might be my favorite book I've ever done. First off, uh, my co-author, Roy Young, was just a delight to work with. He's so uh, good-humored and positive thinking and just uh, creative and a world-class researcher. He's a better researcher than I am, really. And uh, together, we we made a good team because uh, I had certain areas I was strong in. Roy had other areas that he was strong in so if you want me to I'll tell you how it, the book originated it's really quite funny well yeah we, we uh, have about 20 minutes so sure okay uh, Roy is a retired minister and he is the swinginest hippest mm-hmm. retired minister <laughs> I have ever met because mm-hmm. The ministers I grew up in my little town of 2,500 were not real, you know, hip, we called it in, in grade school, whatever. Anyway, Roy's cool. He is really open-minded, is, is first off the good thing. And when he retired uh, from the ministry, I kept trying to coax him into coming down to the ranch and helping me document and research some of my historical uh, guns and arms and other artifacts. Uh, and finally I convinced him to come down and help me. So he came down to southern Texas where I grew up, my little town of Three Rivers, uh, south of San Antonio, about 80 miles. It's only about a hundred, a little over a hundred miles from the Mexican border. The wildest part of Texas until about 1920s. He came down and started helping me document uh, my historical 
revolvers, I think we started on first, then uh, spurs and other things. But anyway, I had just bought this wonderful revolver that you see there on the front cover of the book. It's a real elaborate piece uh, in terms of art. You know, not all art hangs on the wall. Mm-hmm. And guns were one of the first thing that real artists began to express themselves with way back in the 1400s, uh, gold inlay and engraving and silver plating and inlaid ivory and all this stuff. I mean, it was really a whole medium for the artist to express himself since it all started. Well, that gun is uh, like a... Cadillac Escalade that you could get everything possible on. I mean, it has everything. And uh, I bought it, and with the gun came this old yellowed affidavit written in 1930 by a guy named Tom Talley. The gun came out of New Mexico. Believe it or not, it was only, it was less than a hundred miles from where it started out in 1881. Hard to believe, but anyway, I'll get to that later if I have time. But uh, this gun had uh, really cryptic and enigmatic uh, clues on it that just intrigued uh, Roy and me, and it had a guy's monogram on there, FS. And the old affidavit that came with it said uh, something like this. I'll, I'll try to recreate it. Not an exact quote, but it's something like this. Here is the history of the old gun the way I remember it. It was given to a Texas lawman for capturing Billy the Kid. It is one of a pair someone called the Coke Factory and found out that there is Another one, the pair being presented to uh, the lawman. The other one is in possession of a Santa Fe Railroad conductor and cannot be had for any price. (laughs) So, you know, with that, Roy and I were just really fired up. So we started... Uh, research and, and by the way, neither Roy nor I were Billy the Kid fans. That's what's so ironic. You know, I thought, God, why would you be interested in Billy the Kid? Everything is known except what color socks he had on some certain day or something. I mean, books and books and books and movies and articles. Well, you know, he's a very popular right. guy. He's the most popular man in New Mexico, as they say. Anyway. We started researching this guy, and we found out that there was another gun out there that had even more information inscribed on it. And the other gun had the inscription that said, presented to Frank Stewart by W. Scott Moore. So, aha! I always told my students in anthropology, I used to teach anthropology in college, and any time you can place an artifact in space and time, it enhances the value of the artifact because you can 
learn more about it, you can learn who, where, when, how it was used, and so forth. And it's just a whole interesting uh, quest of more information about your artifact. Well, this gun, this pair of guns, had all that. It had all these interesting clues, but nobody hardly knew who Frank Stewart was. So about a year later, after we'd been looking for the other gun for almost a year, we were in this friend of mine's gun room, and lo and behold, there was the other gun down in the display case. So we were flabbergasted. He let us take it out, and some months later, I was able to unite them. The first time the two guns had been united since about 1881 or 85, 140 years later, I put the two guns that were originally presented to Frank Stewart back together, and we photographed it, and I'd send the book. But that made us want to know about Frank Stewart. Who was Frank Stewart? I mean, if you read all the Billy the Kid books, there's not much on him that hardly mentioned him. Well, it turns out Frank Stewart was just as important as Pat Garrick was in capturing Billy the Kid at Stinkin' Spring. And that is why W. Scott Moore, who we learned was the owner of the Adobe Hotel in Las Vegas, New Mexico, presented this pair of fancy, fancy guns to Frank Stewart because the whole town was grateful that Pat Garrett and Frank Stewart took these renegades off the range and made them stop rustling cattle. They gave them all kinds of gifts, if you read. And here's the wonderful part. This is all verified, we found out, in the newspapers at the time, the Las Vegas Optic and Gazette had actual descriptions of W. Scott Moore presenting these gold cylinder factory engraved silver plated. They're actually nickel, but the reporter thought it was silver. Silver plated revolvers to Frank Stewart in gratitude for capturing Billy the Kid. So we thought we looked at each other and thought. Why does nobody know the role Frank Stewart played? We could, we're going to have to do a book on this. So that, that's how the book was born, about but, almost five years ago. So these two revolvers that you paired together, it had to have been heartbreaking to then hand it back to the owner and say, there you go. We're, <laughs> you know, because I'm sure as a collector there was a dollar sign in your head that said, I wonder if this guy would take it. Were you, did he, did you even have that conversation to where you could get both of them permanently together or did he want it back? He wanted back, but you know, it's uh, curiously enough, he, he's a big collector and uh, I didn't try to buy his, oh, he laughingly asked me if he could buy mine, but we both kind of laughed. We knew neither one was wanting to sell our gun, but one is good enough. But curiously enough, he and I also shared another pair of guns that went to Bad Bob Meldrum, who was an outlaw in Colorado. So it's it's become kind of a, a laughing uh, a joke that neither one of us will sell our guns to the other one. (laughs) 
That's funny. Anyway, the whole story of, of documenting Frank Stewart and his capture, uh, you know, his role he played is just fascinating, and that's the main uh, emphasis uh, in the book, our focus. Were there, were, there, were there surprises in the book when you were researching it? Did and I'm a surprise meaning because you're a researcher, you're an archaeologist, you're you've got a wonderful, amazing career. When you were researching this book, did something pop out like, oh my gosh, 20 years ago I read this, like this completes the link, or was there something that popped out in your research where you and Roy looked at each other like, oh my god, what did we just uncover? Oh, yeah, several times. You know, something, Mike, I've noticed uh, in studying history, I just love history. I just have a passion for it. And I've noticed that everything is connected sooner or later. If you study something long enough, you're going to find out it has a connection to your other artifact. And you go, oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, I know him. Gus Gildea is an example from my hometown county in texas was a major player in the lincoln county war and a friend of billy the kid and his gang uh, new john chisholm new pat garrett and there he was born in my county i didn't even know it 10 miles from my ranch i mean and you know just over and over we discovered these wonderful epiphanies i mean just like what I can't believe it, like the receipt of Tunstall's proving where he got his guns and ammo. I mean, that was a breakthrough. Finding the other gun was a breakthrough. Uh, we've got photos and illustrations in that book that have never been published before of sites and uh, things that people talk about, but you can't see them. Uh, until you, you see these photographs in the book, these illustrations. But just over and over again, we just kept finding how everything's connected, it seems like. You know, if you study long enough, if you hadn't made the circle yet, you haven't studied long enough. <laughs> so in this book, was there anybody or any event that you and Roy looked at each other and said, we need to go down that path on a later date and research that thing or person for another book. Or... Oh, yes. Okay. I was oh, gonna say, yes. I didn't know what I was going to say because I was going to say, or did you guys say, "I we can't do this one. This one is a finish. We need to move on. Well, both, actually. Uh, in the... Example of Billy Wilson, uh, you may remember the story where five men were trapped at the stinking spring and they were surrounded by Frank Stewart, his posse, and Pat Garrett, and they finally coaxed them out uh, after they'd been in there cold. Now, this was bitter cold weather on the Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, and they surrounded them in this little rock cabin, and they were in there cold and hungry. They experienced every bad human emotion you can experience. They were scared. They were tired. They were hungry. They were you know, every bad thing you can think of. So they wake up the next morning, 
uh, Charlie Baudry goes out uh, side of the cabin to do what uh, a lot of men do first thing in the morning. And anyway, uh, they shut him down because he had a hat on that they thought was Billy the Kid. So after that, there's only four left in there. Billy Wilson, uh, Dave Rudabaugh, Tom Pickett, and Billy the Kid. So now you've got four cold, hungry, starving, tired, scared outlaws in a little cabin surrounded by a bunch of tough guys. And the tough guys outside start cooking breakfast. And they're smelling the coffee and the bacon frying and everything. You can imagine how it was. You know, here you are, you didn't even have a fire and you're starving and you smell this stuff that's coming from outside. So needless to say, they surrendered. <laughs> and uh, during that process, we began to know Billy Wilson and get interested in him. And he's a real mysterious guy. Turns out he had an alias that Apparently, his name, his real name was David L. Anderson, and yet uh, hardly anybody knew that. And, of course, a lot of them used alias names. Oh, to answer your question earlier, mm -hmm. get this. Frank Stewart wasn't even the real guy's name. His real name was John Green. <laughs> and he was from Amarillo, Texas. Yeah. And nobody knew that until 1935 when he suddenly decided to grant an interview to the Amarillo paper and come clean and say, I'm Frank Stewart. Wow. <laughs> so that was a epiphany. I mean, all these guys had an alias, it seems. And uh, Billy Wilson, who really needs more work, he, he's an example of what you just said. We're interested in him. He turns out he was put in jail. He escaped. He came back to Texas and became his sheriff of Terrell County, Texas. I mean, just amazing, these stories, you know, that just need more work. So we're, we're kind of interested in... Uh, David L. Anderson or uh, Billy Wilson, whichever one you want to call him, and uh, Gus Gilday and Roy's uh, doing work on Stillwell, who is his relative related to your Arizona right. uh, gunfights and stuff. So, yes, there, there are all kinds of more rabbit holes we need to go down. Well, we got just a couple minutes left. You can find the book, Chasing Billy the Kid, at booksellers near you. Um, I'm going to flip inside if you hear some turning, some pages. I uh, I kind of messed up. I was going to write the website down. Do you know Roy's website? Yeah, it's OS Book Roundup. That's the best place to order it there from. There you go. Because that's Book directly Roundup. from us. You don't have to uh, pay the bookstore premiums and so forth. And then you get Old West Book Roundup. There you go. OldWestBookRoundup.com? Uh, I think so. It's Apache, Oklahoma. I guess you can Google it. I don't, I'm not sure. It's, see, Roy's a bookseller, right. Western researcher, book bibliophile. So he's handling the sales. So it's out of Apache, Oklahoma. Okay. And uh, well, we you really can find enjoy him. doing that. You book. can actually find him too is at A Books. Uh, a books yes. is another one that you can find his books, and you can find all of them. We got just a few minutes left. Um, it's on Amazon, also. There you go. Um, and Bookfinder. Just a few minutes left. 
I'm going to ask the okay. same question I asked Kurt, or not Kurt, but Chuck Parsons. Now, I asked Chuck, is there something that about him that nobody knows? And he says, well, I love, I love deep-fried mushrooms and ranch dressing. So <laughs> I'm going to ask Kurt, a man who is well-traveled, well-traveled, is there something, is there a favorite, is there something that when you travel, you've got to see every time, or is there a food, or is it something that your family knows about you that nobody knows but the family, and they all think dad and grandpa's weird? <laughs> well, yes, of course, answer to that. Uh, I, I like to say the older I get, the more I appreciate simplicity and a person who will stand up for what they believe in. But, you know, people, we live in such a fast-paced town. People need to think about our just simple blessings. i tell you what I appreciate is a lime, artichoke hearts, oh. hot water. I mean, just things that people take for granted, you know. And I grew up with what I uh, called the perpetual optimism of the cowboy, which was taught to me by my father, because every time something bad had happened, you were in pain, you got bucked off a horse and a cactus, and you're really crying and hurting. He'd say, are you hurt? You know, or we go, hell yes, we're hurt, man. We feel bad. And he'd say, well, think about what an old cowboy had done. It could always been worse. worse. <laughs> so... Just appreciate the simple things in life and uh, good friends. Uh, we have uh, our motto at the ranch is placeres requiring compañía. If you speak Spanish, you know that means pleasures require company. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish figured that out 400 years ago. You know, this stuff, collecting artifacts and so forth, there's not that much fun unless you can share it with your friends and people around you who appreciate the same thing. And, I really enjoy showing off my collection. Like the old man says, that my favorite thing to do is to find it and collect and buy it. My second favorite thing is to show it to my friends. Mm -hmm. so, so that's just a couple. All right. Well, you can, you can find Chasing Billy the Kid at Amazon and A Books and booksellers near you. Probably Amazon would be a good spot, but if you want to... Uh, to get it autographed and signed, you're going to have to contact Roy. Um, and we gave you the website on that. I'm looking all over for that darn website. He needs to put it inside the books is what he needs to do. Um, well, we have a flyer. We, you know, know we send that. I don't even know what the heck I did with the flyer. I think, honestly, I put it up and I collected it. I put it somewhere safe. But regardless of it, you can find Chasing Billy the Kid. Frank Stewart and the Untold Story of the Manhunt for William H. Bonney by Kurt House and Roy B. Young. You can find it at Amazon and booksellers near you. Of course, I want to thank my friends at the Wild West History Association. Go on wildwesthistory.org and find them on YouTube on their wildwesthistory.org channel. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and notification bell because they've got some great content and videos coming out and out there with their bugs on the windshield. And uh, it's just it's just a fantastic page. You can find this podcast uh, at uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts and interviews, along with my Cochise County YouTube channel that uh, has got all almost all of the podcasts in an audio form only. It's not a video, but an audio form. So if you have somebody out there 
that loves Western history, but maybe it's hard for them to read. Uh, maybe they got some eye problems. Send them over there to that YouTube because we have now over 40 hours of, um, of content on there for them to listen to and learn a little bit about Western history. Um, I appreciate it. Will you come back and do this again? Sure. Be glad to. Cause it was fun. I got more arms stuff to talk to you about because I'm intrigued by it. And there was something that Colt made um, that's an acetylene generator. Do you know about that? Well, not really. See, that's something I need to learn. I told you I'm still a student. <laughs> well, and the reason I say that is it fascinates me because over in the ghost town of Cochise, which you and I talk about, over in the, it's not really a ghost town, but the town of Cochise, uh, which is in Cochise County, they have a acetylene generator that was built by the Colt, manuf Colt, Colt Arms manufacturer, Colt, and it created and built uh, or it created uh, acetylene, which was used before candles and electricity uh, or after candles. They would put the acetylene as a liquid, acetylene as a liquid, and it would burn, and that was our streetlights. And um, the generator itself is over in Cochise Hotel in a back storage room. It's the craziest thing. It's sitting there. If you guys get a chance, go over to the Cochise Hotel um, and see the Colt Acetylene Generator. Um, wow. Of course, that's crazy, isn't it? And, uh, and we yeah. appreciate you guys a bunch. As always, uh, you can find me again, like I said, over, over on all the all the iHeart and the apps, and we appreciate you a bunch. Until next time, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.